This morning, uh, turn to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 20, covering basically the first half of Mark chapter 5 this morning. Uh, Cliff, feel free to interrupt with an interruption like that at any point. I think that was helpful. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, for you you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. When I was growing up, it was the era of CDs, primarily. Uh, Cassettes were around. They were there. Uh, My dad played them every morning on the way to school, but I didn't usually have cassettes. I didn't have a cassette player. I didn't have anything that I would use to play a cassette with. I had CDs. And in that generation of CDs, I had a portable CD player that was in the generation where, like, if you were listening to it on the road and you hit a bump, it would skip in the song. You had to hold it level. If you tilted it a little bit, then the, the whole thing would, it felt like it was going to fall apart. And the first two CDs that I ever had, when I got that portable CD player, my dad took me to Hastings. It's a, it used to be an entertainment store. They had one in Conway, and we went there all the time. Not in Conway, but the, the one where we had it. And he took me there and said, you can pick out two CDs, whatever you want. Being a wise little first or second grader, like I was, I went straight to the greatest hits albums. I went to the greatest hits sections. I didn't want to get just some random stuff with a few songs I liked. I wanted the best of these bands. And I picked two CDs, The Village People and The Temptations. And over time, I gravitated toward The Temptations uh, because you can only listen to YMCA and Macho Man so many times, and then you kind of get over it, even as a first or second grader. And The Temptations had this song that I always loved. It's called Ain't Too Proud to Beg. And the second verse says this. Now I heard a crying man is half a man with no sense of pride. 
But if I have to cry to keep you, I don't mind weeping if it'll keep you by my side. You guys have no idea how much restraint it took for me not to sing that to you right then, (laughs) just to read it. The temptations were not too proud to beg. And really, no one is, right? There's something right now for you that you would beg for. It's not beyond anybody in this room. If you want it enough, you are going to beg for it. And in our text today, you may have noticed that there's a lot of begging that happens. Everyone's begging Jesus. Everyone's falling at his feet. It says that word four different times, actually three different times. I'm implying it one time. There's four different groups of people who beg Jesus for something in this story. And in each of these instances, someone's begging Jesus to be delivered from something. I think if we'll hone in on each of these begs, each of these four asks that someone makes to Jesus in this story, it's going to help us better understand the God who should be begged and the people who are begging him, who have nowhere else to go, no one else to whom they can beg, but they can only hope for deliverance at his feet. There are four begs for deliverance in our text today. The first one is a deliverance from brokenness in the first six verses. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Now, this is the implied beg in the story. We'll get to the actual beg here in just a second. I think this man is begging Jesus. He's falling at his feet, possessed by demons, begging Jesus to deliver him from his brokenness, to deliver him from his sin to deliver him from the situation in which he found himself. And this man's state, the situation he found himself, was a sorry situation. It's tragic when you read the text. He was dwelling in death. He lived among the tombs. He came out of the tombs to come and meet Jesus. This guy was so utterly broken, he was so utterly ruled by the evil that possessed him, that he lived among tombs. That place, for any Jewish person at this time, would have been unclean. You weren't supposed to be around there. You couldn't touch anything. And it's where he lived. He was surrounded by uncleanness. He was surrounded by death. Dead bodies weren't allowed to be in the same vicinity as clean people, and he was always with the dead. Okay, even today, somebody who's living in a graveyard would be pretty weird. It's not normal. They don't build houses in graveyards. They build fences around them. No one spends much time there. Even if you go to visit, you go for a short time, and then you leave. Living in a graveyard, living among the tombs, would be unheard of, but he's living there because he has nowhere else to go. This isn't prime real estate that he found and bought. He's not welcome in the town. He has no home, so he went where there are no homes, where no one was going to bother him. He was not among the living. 
He wasn't a member of society. He might as well have been dead for all the life that he saw around him. He was living among the tombs because death was all that he could see. He had no hope among the living, no outlook for a brighter future someday. Dwelling among the tombs and one day joining those inside them was all that he could see in front of him. That was all the hope that he had. Not only was he living among the tombs, but he was completely unbound. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Nothing could contain him in his demonic influence. There was no restriction that was able to be put on him. He was a wild man. He was unruly. He was unable to conform even to chains which held him. Now, we, with our modern ears, might listen to that, might read that and think, well, he was free then. He didn't have any chains. He could do whatever he wanted. Chains we hear as something that is an evil put on the man. But the chains were there for his good. The chains were there to try to help him. They were meant to subdue him, to keep him safe from hurting himself or from anyone else. But he wouldn't let them. The chains were put on him in order to keep him from hurting anyone, including himself, and he wrenched them off. He tore them off. No one was able to subdue him. So while being unbound, being out of his chains, might sound like freedom to our ears, it actually speaks to the sorry state of this man. He was beyond the help of those around him. There was nothing physically that they could do to stop him in his actions. And he was all alone in that strength that he had to wrench apart the chains. No one could bind him anymore. No one had the strength to subdue him. So we know from that text, verses 3 and 4, that at one time people tried, right? There were chains on him at some point. Someone put chains on him. They wanted to help him. They wanted to help him from hurting himself or from hurting anyone else. So they tried. They put him in chains. And for a while they were successful. The chains worked briefly. And then he tore them off. And we don't know how many times they went back and forth. It seems like it was a period, right? That there was several instances of him being in chains and then no longer being in chains. That over and over, people came and tried to help him, tried to give him some sort of respite from his own power, from his own strength, from his own self-destruction, and it didn't work. So they tried and they were successful. And then eventually they kept trying and they were unsuccessful. And now they don't even try anymore. He's not in chains now. No one had the strength to subdue him. So they just left him. How lonely this guy must have been. To know that at one time people tried. People cared. They wanted to help. But eventually, after trying and failing who knows how many times... He drove them to the point that they just gave up on him. They left him to his own destruction. They let him live among the tombs. They weren't putting these chains on him anymore. You see, he used to have people who were with him. He knew what it was like to be surrounded by those who cared. But now he's surrounded only by the dead. Now he's surrounded only by that which is unclean. Now he is painfully aware of his solitude. Because it would be one thing 
if he had always lived among the tombs, right? If he was born among the tombs, he lived among the tombs, and he died among the tombs. But surely that wasn't his case. That wouldn't have been the case for anybody. A man who always lives in the dark doesn't understand what he's missing by not being in the light. But this guy knows. He experienced it. At one point in time, they were there, and now they're gone. And he just has to live in that lowliness. A lot of you probably know about me, maybe not everybody, that I have a fairly strange food allergy. I am allergic to the meat of hooved animals, which primarily means beef and pork. Also, no deer, uh, lamb, zebra, giraffe, so on and so forth. Squirrels are borderline. I can't have the meat of hooved animals. But I wasn't always this way. At one point in time, I could. I didn't develop this allergy until I was a freshman in college. So that means throughout my teenage years, my prime pizza-eating years, I was eating sausage pizza and pepperoni pizza and Canadian bacon pizza, like at least once a week. I know what it's like and I miss it dearly. There's a reason they don't put chicken on a pizza, because it dries out. Sausage, pepperoni, they don't do that. I know what it's like. I, I tasted it. I had it. It was my favorite. A meat lover's pizza from Pizza Hut was like the pinnacle of cuisine in my 18-year-old mind. And I can never have it again. I know what it's like to have tasted that which was good and now to know that I may never experience that again. I think that I am worse off having developed the allergy than I would have been if I had just been born never experiencing what a hamburger felt like. But this man, he's in the same boat that I am. He had people at one time. They were there. They cared. They cared enough to go out to tombs and put them in chains. But they're not there anymore. And I think that he is painfully aware of this experience. He's painfully aware of his own situation, that his sorrow is only exacerbated, it's only exaggerated. By knowing that at one time he had people there who cared and they're gone. He is all alone in his own evil, in his possession. He's surrounded by only the dead who do not see him or do not care about his pain. And in his solitude, he is self-destructive. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Okay, if his situation wasn't already sad enough, he's possessed by a demon, he lives in a graveyard, he's all alone. All he is doing night and day is hurting himself. He's always crying out and cutting himself with stones. He's tormented to the point that he is harming himself more and more in his affliction. Because the sin that he has, the demons that he is possessed by, only destroy they don't build him up at all. His demon possession was attacking his heart, his mind, his body, his soul with the regular aim, the regular hope that he would be destroyed. Okay, and this isn't like a one-time thing. He is constantly crying out. 
He is always harming himself. Crying out in pain and agony night and day with no rest from his torment. No salve for his wounds. I think this man was longing to get out of this situation that he found himself in. He was helpless. He had no hope. All he could wait for was death. He was longing for release. So then, in verse 6, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, and he fell down before him. He cried out with a loud voice. He was longing for a release from his brokenness. The reality of sin and death had affected him to the point that he had been possessed and oppressed by a demon, and he wanted out. He was desperate. So he saw Jesus from afar. He was looking. And he saw him. And when he saw him, he ran. He didn't walk. He wasn't nonchalantly waiting for Jesus to show up, thinking maybe he'll come to the graveyard today and maybe he'll be able to help me. He was wanting the solution to his sin and death and pain so much that he was looking for that solution and when he saw it, he ran to it. He fell down before it. Now, this may have been the demon showing submission to Jesus' power. That may have been why he was falling down. But I think it also may have just been the man coming to the only one who could help him. The only one who could cast demons out. He groveled on the ground, showing that he was bringing nothing to the table. Just his begging. He had nothing to give. No dowry to present. No power to contend with the Son of Man. All he could do was beg for deliverance. All he could do was beg that Jesus would see him, hear him, and save him when no one else had been able to do that. He fell at his feet and he begged. He cried out with a loud voice, begging to be delivered from his pain, sin, and death. Which leads us to the second beg in the story. Verse 7. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The second beg in this story is from the demon, begging Jesus that he might not torment him. Now, it's not totally clear who's speaking in these verses, right? And specifically in verse 7, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? We don't really know exactly who is speaking when the man speaks. Is it the man or the demon? With demon possession, does it make any difference? Is there any difference at all between the man speaking and the demon speaking? Well, I don't think we can clearly attribute who is speaking in these verses. I don't think it's obvious from Scripture who is doing which action in the man and the demon possession. But I think that most of what we hear the man say here is the demon speaking through him, specifically because we get to the name of the demon later. But it's the man's voice that's crying out. 
The man cried out, his vocal cords straining as they had done so many nights before, crying out among the tombs. This demon is begging not to be tormented, but to be dealt with. See, he begged according to the mercy and power of God for the Son of God not to torment a demon, his enemy. He begged that Jesus would not yet totally destroy him as he one day will. I think that's what he's getting at there. What have you to do with me? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. He knows who's in power in this situation. He is begging Jesus not to judge him as he ultimately and finally will one day. To not destroy him as he ultimately will one day. He had evidently been saying several times, almost playing with the demons, telling them to come out of the man, knowing he had the power to remove them at any moment, immediately. And the demon, see, he thought that he was powerful until Jesus was there. Verse 9. Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. This man's identity had been entirely lost to the demons which possessed him. His name had become Legion, rather than whatever man had named him, whatever name he had before. So Legion would make us think that he probably has a lot of demons, right? He says, Legion, for we are many. A legion was around 6,000 at this time in Rome. But I don't know that we have like a firm number on how many demons he had. I think it just means he's very oppressed, very demonized, lots of demons in this man. The demon thought that he was powerful because he was many until Jesus came. And Jesus here is in total control because in verse 10, he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. The demon is begging Jesus not to send them away. So then he sees the pigs and has to go there. Jesus was in total control and total power, not the demon. This isn't a Hollywood movie where there's a struggle between good and evil, where if you don't say the right words in the right order with the right holy water and the right crucifix, then the demon's going to win. The demon is begging Jesus. He is powerless before the God of all creation who even created him. There's no question who's in charge of this situation. So then Jesus, responding to the begging of the demons, permits the possession of the pigs. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, still begging, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. See, Jesus gave his permission here. They weren't going to go anywhere other than where Jesus allowed them to go, where he directed them to go. Jesus allowed the possession of the pigs. It's not like he did a partial exorcism and said, okay, man, I can get the demons out of you, but I can't get them anywhere, so go stand next to the pigs, and I'll just try to do a quick copy and paste. He permitted the possession of the pigs. And the pigs were immediately destroyed, 2,000 in number. They rushed down the side of a hill into the sea, which shows the, the multitude and the destruction of power that the, of the demons that this man was dealing with. See, the demon's whole goal for him was just to end him. But Jesus delivered him from his brokenness. He didn't ultimately judge the demons, as he one day will, but he allowed them to go into the pigs. And there's always been a question when we read this text, right? Like, why? 
Couldn't he have just sent him out? That's what he usually does. He's not ever anywhere else in Scripture going, well, I'll take the demon out of you, but there's a random animal over here that I'll put it into. So why here? Why do you allow the demons to go into the pigs? I think there's several reasons, but the, the most meaningful of which was to show the love that Jesus has for people. That the demons wanted to end this man this whole time And the God who is sovereign kept this man alive. And in the moment he removed the demons from the man, he sent them into an animal, which is not man, which is not people. And they immediately died. They were immediately destroyed. I think it's to show both the destructional intent of the demons but also the special love that God has here in Jesus for his people that he will deliver them from that which wants to destroy them. He wouldn't allow anyone else to suffer as this man had. He didn't just take the demons out and let them float around until they found somebody else. He took them out of the man and told them where to go. Not to another man, not to a different man, not for another opportunity, but into the pigs that they would be ended and that humans, that people, would be saved from them. This next beg in the story is a deliverance from change. They're begging for deliverance for change. Verses 14 through 17. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They were begging Jesus to deliver them from the change that he brought with him. The herdsmen saw the pigs rush off a cliff, a weird occurrence, not doesn't happen every day, so they go and they tell the entire town. They tell everybody what they've seen, what they've heard. And when the people arrived from the town, wanting to go out and see both this crazy man and the pigs, where they expected to see a demon-possessed man who was naked, screaming among the tombs, they found him clothed and in his right mind. So then they got the full story, right? They heard exactly what had happened. They told him exactly what had occurred. And what was their response when someone said, you know that demon-possessed man who was always unbound? who was always hurting himself, who was always screaming and crying out in pain, who lived among the tombs. He's been delivered. He no longer has the demon. He's sitting here. He's clothed in his right mind. Jesus saved this man. When they hear that, what's their response? Did they joyously welcome the man back into society and try to find a house for him? Did they throw a party for the return of his sanity? Did they thank Jesus for helping him, for bringing an end to the urban legend of crazy naked tomb man? No. They didn't do any of that. They begged Jesus to leave. They said, you've got to go, man. Jesus had done a great work which revealed his nature and his authority over the realm of evil, right? We talked about last week Jesus' authority over the realm of nature where he calmed the storm with just a word. 
Here we see his authority over the realm of evil, where he delivers this man from the realm of evil, from the demons. He's revealing himself and his godhood to the people. He has the power and authority to cast out demons as he wills. And he will exercise that will for the good of even the most unruly outcast of society, even the crazy man living among the tombs. He would save even one such as this man. When he removed the demons, he'd make sure they didn't just go possess someone else, but he'd send them into the pigs. And the people's response to all of this, that glorious work that Christ was doing, is to look Jesus in the face and to beg him to leave, to get out. See, they preferred the status quo of societal outcasts being outcasts. They said, crazy naked tomb man was fine, really. He didn't hurt me. But now I don't know what to do. Now I don't know what my life looks like. They preferred that other status quo to the work and power and movement of Jesus. They begged him to leave and in so doing to deliver them from the change that his power was going to bring. Okay, if we take the the Greek back to this verse, verse 17, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. It's actually ambiguous. We don't know that they're saying Jesus here just as him. We assume it's Jesus. We don't know if it's Jesus or the man though. But I don't really think it matters that much. I don't think they care. I think they want the whole situation gone. You got to get out of here. Go. We'll get you on. Your little dog too. Leave. Of all the sad facts in this text today, and I think it's a tragic story with a lot of hope and deliverance mixed in, this may be both the saddest and the most relevant for us to hear. You see, when Christ delivers his people, When he saves, he comes to those who are sick and broken because they are the ones in need of a physician. They are the ones who need salvation. And that can be a messy process. It can upend some of our status quo, some of what we expect. But when it happens, when Christ saves one such as this, we can't respond by asking him to leave. We can't respond by saying, I preferred the way it was. It may not have been as good for him, but it was a lot cleaner for me. We can't respond like that. We can't tell him to go somewhere else, to stop working amongst us here, to stop saving these people here. We can't respond like the townspeople did in this text, who would rather keep things as they are than to see him save people who desperately need his salvation. I said this last week, and I meant it. It is my prayer that the baptistry behind me will be continually filled in this church, that we will over and over see testaments of God's salvation in people through us here, that when they come to faith, we will get to see a picture of that faith in their baptism here. Man, I want that. I've been praying for that since I got here and before. God is powerful and mighty to save, and I want him to use us to do that. But when that happens, things are going to look a little bit different. They might even get a little bit messy. 
Our fellowship is going to look differently than we expect it to. Our church is going to have different people coming in and being a part of it. And things are going to get messy with that. Okay, some of the people that God chooses to save will not look like you. Some of the people that God chooses to save will not act like you or talk like you or think like you. But he'll save them all the same. When he grants that prayer, when he saves people to himself through us here in this church, I hope we don't ask him to leave just because things got a little bit messy, just because he did it in a way that we weren't expecting him to. I hope we respond by welcoming and embracing the man in front of us who used to be crazy naked living among the tombs and is now clothed and sitting in his right mind. Let's welcome him. Let's embrace him. He's been delivered from evil. That deserves a party. That should be our response. Rather than turning to the God who's working, the God who's moving, the God who's saving, and looking him in the face and saying, you got to get out of here. Please leave. Please just let things stay the way they were. Yeah, okay, you can, you can work, you can do some stuff, but not like this. Not with these people. I hope that we don't beg him for deliverance from change. I hope that we embrace his saving power in people that we might not expect. Which leads us to the, the final beg in this story, verses 18 through 20. As he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The fourth and final beg in this story is a beg of deliverance from the world by the man who was saved. It's the only beg that Jesus says no to. That this man, I think, has a conversion experience. I think he is now a Christian. I think he is not only no longer demon-possessed, I think he has faith, hope, and trust in the God who saved him from that demon. I think he believes that Jesus is the Son of God and wants him to act and move in his life in such a way that he can follow him always. He asks Jesus that he might be with him. I think he has a conversion experience here. He wants to follow him wherever he goes. That language that he might be with him is very similar to the language of the calling of the disciples, that Christ called them to himself that they might be with him. And the man is wanting that calling. He's wanting that opportunity. He wants to serve and follow Jesus at the highest, most costly level that he can find. I think that's out of love for Jesus. I think that's out of thankfulness for the deliverance that Jesus has wrought in this man's life. I think he believes in him and he wants to be with him. But I think he also just desperately didn't want to stay there. He didn't want to be with those people. He didn't want to be in that place. He knew them. He knew they had abandoned him. Yeah, they cared at one point, but now they don't. 
And now that he is different, now that he has been saved and fixed by Jesus, by his power, their response is, I liked you better when you were crazy, man. He wants to get out of there. Those people, this world, he had found was not all it was cracked up to be. It had been harsh and unyielding. And it seemed to squash him in particular. He didn't see anybody else that had to go through what he went through. He wanted out. He wanted to be gone. This world was no longer where he wanted to be. That place was no longer where he wanted to be. So he wanted out. Doesn't that feel like us in some ways? In our Wednesday night studies, we talked about the fall this last week, that now when we work, because of the fall, instead of fruit, instead of the the fruitful uh, fruits of our labors, we get thorns and thistles. And for this guy, thorns and thistles looked and felt like demon possession among the tombs. He didn't want to be here anymore. He didn't want to be among them anymore. Those people, even now, wanted nothing to do with him. They didn't like him before Christ restored his humanity, but now they hated him. They didn't want anything to do with him. So think like mobs and pitchforks trying to get him out of the region. The demons had been exercised, but he still just wasn't accepted. He was still the other. He still wasn't a part of society. He wanted to be with the one who had given him everything. He rightly understood all that he owed to Jesus. So he was willing and eager to give up whatever he had and whatever home he dwelled to be with the one who had become a home for him. He said, wherever you are, that's where I want to be. Wherever you go, that's where I want to go. Whatever you do, that's what I want to do. This was the first time, maybe ever, that he had been loved, respected, and accepted In this way, leaving Jesus' presence made no sense to this man. He said, I want to go, I want to be with you. He wanted to get out of here. Just like in some way we all do, right? I was talking with someone a few weeks ago, and they said, I've got nothing left. Why won't he just take me? I don't want to be here anymore. Why wouldn't he let me be with him? And I don't have great answers for that other than the answer that this man has given. That you have a job to do. You're still here. You don't get to go. You don't get to just be with him after he's delivered you because he has given you something to do. The greatness of heaven, the presence of Jesus, those are good enough gifts to make us long to leave this world. But being here is enough to make us want to leave it in some ways, right? It's hard. It's long. It doesn't feel like home. So wanting to leave is natural. Wanting to leave makes sense in a lot of ways. It is painfully obvious that this life is not as it was intended to be. But Jesus gave the man this answer. I think the same answer that he gives us. He gives him a reason to stay. 
He doesn't permit him, but says to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. Jesus didn't allow him to go with him, which should shock us, right? Like everybody else in the story is saying, Jesus, leave, and he's saying, Jesus, let me be with you. Okay, Jesus, at least in some way, listened to the begging of demons and did what they asked, but now this man... He turns and says, no, you have to stay. You have to do this. When you come to faith in Christ, he doesn't immediately take you up into heaven. And you're not called to go into your room and pray until you just die of starvation. Us forsaking the people around us for our own good and our own comfort, which is what it would be, right? It would be better. Paul even says, my desire is to depart, for that is far better. But for me, to live is Christ, even though to die is gain. So we who are living have to live in Christ, because that is not only encouraged, but it is not permitted for us to leave, because he gives us a job to do. He says to stay, to go home, to tell your friends And tell them how much the Lord has done for you. How much mercy he has had on you. That's why we're here. It's more than that. There's additional jobs to that. But I think the the job that he gives the man is the job he gives to every Christian. To stay among the people, to stay in the world, to tell them who Jesus is and what he's done. It's the largest reason why we're still on this planet. Let's look briefly at 2 Peter 2.11. It should be on the screen. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, which is what we are. This is not our home. We are strangers and aliens in a foreign land. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That they will see you as honorable, that they might glorify God after they see your good deeds on the last day. That's why we're here. That's why we stay. This disciple of Jesus obeyed his master, and when he did so, he caused the people around him to marvel. It says in verse 20, he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Everyone who heard it was astounded at the great work of Christ in this man. Because he stayed. Because he did his job. See, Christ here in this story, God, is worthy of being begged. Like the demon-possessed man, we are caught in our sin. We are caught in our brokenness. We are surrounded by evil and death. And death and self-destruction are our only possible options apart from Christ. But when we beg Christ to deliver us, he is faithful to save. He is mighty to save. And he will save his people from their sin, from death, and from evil. Because he came to live a perfect life on our behalf and to die on our behalf so that he might be raised on our behalf to defeat the forces of sin, death, and evil on our behalf and to give us the hope of new life. All the forces of darkness that are around us, all they can do 
right now is to beg him for just a little bit more time. Don't destroy me yet. Don't torment me now. All they can do is just want a little bit more time because they are powerless before him and his power. And when he does so, when he does save his people before returning and judging the evil ones, if we're not careful, we'll turn to him and ask him to stop. We'll turn to him and ask him to leave rather than continuing to do his work in and among us. And it's my prayer, my hope, that that is never said of us in this place. It's never said that we ask Jesus to stop working and go somewhere else just because he saved someone who was a little bit messy in the midst of us. When he saved us, though we may beg to be with him, even now in heaven, because that's far better, and he knows it's far better, he's given us a job to do. He has said, go and tell how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. And that is why we're still here. I hope, I pray, that we will lean into that job that he has given us this week and every week. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for listening to your people when they beg you. Thank you for being worthy of being begged. Thank you for your power, your strength, your might, and your willingness to save, to come from afar to save even one like us. When you move, let us be thankful for that movement. Let us respond to that movement. Let us lean into that movement. Rather than asking you to leave, let us ask how we might partner with you in this work, how we might be your instruments in this work, God, one day you'll take us and that day will be far better. But until that day, let us do our jobs. Let us do the work that you've given us to do. Let us bring you glory and honor and worship as you deserve. Let that be what we're known for. Hear us as we beg because we have no power in ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.